From Adult Serial, I'm Matt Carlson, and this is Reconsider Strangers, the show where I talk with complete strangers to discover who they are, how they grew up, and learn from their stories, and maybe gain a friend in the process. There is no better strategy to learn who someone is than to talk with them. In this episode, we're going to finish the second part of the two-part interview with Travis Parkin. If you didn't listen to last week's conversation, I would encourage you to listen as you will not want to miss it, and it will give you context for the last half of this amazing interview. Last week, we ended the conversation with Travis getting a job with TWA and flying internationally after having a tumultuous childhood to becoming a flight purser where he learned the art of fine dining while taking passengers across the world. His job as a flight purser was quite elegant, but there was a darker side to his experience at the airline. So after I'd been with uh, TWA for a couple of years, Jimmy Carter was, uh, no, he wasn't elected yet. Uh, So it was in the early, it was like 72 or 73, we had this uh, gasoline uh, crisis, you know, and uh, in America, fuel shortages, massive fuel shortages. There were lines of cars, like filling stations, kind of like at Venezuela today. You know, mm-hmm. that's how it was. You know, especially in a place like Manhattan, the lines would be two or three blocks long to wow. get to get a tank of gas, and uh, so the airlines were suffering. They couldn't get fuel either, and the price was going up and everything. So they um, they cut back. Uh, the airlines cut back on all these flights. Like I would say, they reduced their flights by you know thirty percent or something, and so they had to lay a lot of people off. Well. They didn't want to lay off pursers because of our language qualification and, and all. We were very tough to replace. It was hard to find them, you know, in particular American guys that spoke a couple of foreign languages. Whereas on the other hand, every young woman in those days dreamed of being a flight hostess. You know, it was, you know, travel and uh, the glamour of it all, you know. And so they knew that. Uh, they they viewed them as being expendable. You know, they well, we can find stewardesses that are a dime a dozen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did something that was uh, completely unjust and wouldn't fly by today's labor laws, but they let the male flight pursers, and all the pursers were males, uh, you know, because they didn't need as many of us because there weren't as many flights going to Europe. They had to cut back like a third of them so instead of laying them off or furloughing them, as they called it, uh, they let them replace a stewardess on domestic or international flights and laid her off. Wow. Okay, so she was furloughed because if she decided not to come back when the furlough was over, well, we just train a new one, you know, as that's, that's, how they, that's how they looked at it, you know. So um, anyway, I... Um, Flew as a domestic, uh, they didn't have the word flight attendant then, you know, they, I think they called me a steward or something, you know, I flew domestically uh, for uh, a few months until the fuel crisis was over and then they wanted us to all go back to becoming flight pursers. And, you know, I kind of liked the domestic runs Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, for a number of reasons. It wasn't 12 hour flight. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a 12-hour yeah. flight, and uh, 
you didn't have customs. And this was before all the hijackings and stuff. So there was no one checking our bags or anything. So you could, you know, bring weed, you know, uh, on a flight, anything you wanted with you and didn't have to go through any of that rigmarole. When I was, you know? Yeah, when I was a kid, we would just get on the plane. Get on the plane, yeah, sure. We'd watch my dad take off. We'd walk up to the windows and watch him take off. Now you yeah. can't go anywhere. You can't yeah. the steps. Exactly, so, you know. Yeah. So, um, so I uh, uh, decided, uh, you know, I think I want to continue to fly uh, as a domestic, you know, flight steward. And so when they called me back up, I, you know, I sent a nice letter and saying, you know, hey, thanks a lot, but, you know, I kind of dig domestic and uh, I think I'll stay doing this. So they sent me a letter back saying in no uncertain terms that it was not their policy, you know, that this was sort of a, you know, a temporary uh, measure and everything, but it is not our policy to hire men to work as hostesses on domestic flights. So had this letter in black and white. I was denied because of my gender. So I, I went and got a lawyer, and then he referred wow. me to the Human Rights Commission yeah. and Equal Opportunity Commission, got involved in everything, and we were gonna, they were going to sue uh, TWA on sexual discrimination charges. So I later found out from a friend who was in management at the time that uh, the corporate lawyers for TWA advised them to drop the whole thing. They said, if you go to court with this guy, he's got you. You know, I mean, he's got this letter saying you didn't hire him because of his gender. You know, right. we already know he's qualified to do the job because, duh, he's been doing it, you know. So, you know, there's just no way around this. You're going to get nailed. And in all likelihood, the judge is going to issue a directive saying that TWA and perhaps all airlines from here on out have to open the ranks to males. And that freaked them out. National Airlines had this campaign Hi, I'm Debbie, fly me. You know, you can watch them on YouTube, those old videos, you know, but they're really promoting, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sex, you know, and they didn't allow stewardesses to be married. You wow. could not be married uh, back in the 60s and 70s. If you got married, you lost your job. Some of them got married and they just kept it on the DL, you know, but, um, but you could not be married. And what's that message? Well, oh, because we need you to be available for our male flying the male flying public. That's My like, that's, I mean, by t it's like crazy, you know? Right. But anyway, uh, that's the way it was. And so... Um, Fortunately, the world has changed. The world has changed, yeah. So, so uh, and the thing about it is it, it, it wasn't even valid because when you pick up the phone to book a flight in those days, you weren't thinking about how cute your stewardess is going to be. I want to know what's the price of the ticket? Right. What's, uh, yeah, how many stops does it make? What, what time do I have to be at the airport? It's a, hey... I'm a, a red-blooded uh, male heterosexual, you know. Uh, I'd love to have an attractive stewardess, you know, uh, to chat with on the plane or whatever. But that's like way down my list of priorities, you know, for, for what's important, you know. So, um, so anyway, uh, TWA dropped. The, uh, they, they gave me a pilot's uniform with one stripe, and they let me fly for... Uh, uh, as the only male flight attendant in America for like a year and a half. And then a guy named Richard Olivares, who was with uh, Pan Am, sued Pan Am on sexual discrimination charges. And it went to court. He prevailed. And the judge issued the directive saying all the airlines now have to 
you know, hire both genders and stuff. But for like a year and a half, I endured a lot of crude, uh, yeah. you know, they, uh, I'd be go- coming down the aisle and they would say, uh, oh, it's the ball-bearing stewardess, you know, or uh, um, who's flying the plane because I had a pilot's uniform on, you know. They, you know. Sure. So, uh, so anyway, I, I, I did that. And um, uh, See, you've just been a rebel. Travis, indeed, has always been a rebel. From going against his mom and society's racism, his dad's neglect, the airline's gender discrimination, Travis just does what he wants to do. In fact, Travis just sold his graphic design and screen printing business to his employees so he could pursue abstract art with his daughter and has an internet radio station at rebelspinner.com. I wondered just how far his rebellious nature had taken him. So a question for you, like being a rebel, Mm-hmm. Have you had any run-ins with the law? Oh, sure. Um, a few, actually. And um, um, when I worked for the airlines, I had this uh, beautiful Haitian girlfriend who used to get really good uh, marijuana. And um, so she bought it from this guy named Jim, who owned a toy store in the East Village. I think it was like on East 10th Street. He made hand-carved wooden toys. And that was kind of his front. He really sold bags of weed, you know. <laughs> and it was Mexican weed, and it was, you know, uh, it was okay. It wasn't very expensive at all. But we used to go there and buy, you know, from him. So then um, um, one day, I was just hanging out there smoking at Jim's place, and um, I noticed the number of people that in the three hours that we were hanging out of this place, there was probably like five or six people who came by and, you know, bought some weed and threw 20 bucks or 40 bucks on the counter, you know, whatever. And I was kind of like doing the math and stuff. And I'm thinking, man, you know, he just took in like over $300 in the last few hours. And, you know, which was a fair amount of money back then. I mean, still is today, depending yeah. on your situation. But, um, but, um, and so I started picking his brain and, uh, and I said, well, what if I bought a, a larger amount from you? Would you give me a discount, you know? And, uh, and so uh, he's like, sure, because I knew all these people with the airlines that were starting to get high. It was the 70s. This was when, you know, kind of marijuana and, uh, and cocaine and LSD and stuff was going mainstream, you know? In the 60s, it was all sort of a long-haired deal, you know, counterculture deal, but now, you know, everybody was wearing the wide collars and, you know, you, you know I mean, even conservatives, you know, because it was a look, you like know. Travolta. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, exactly, the Travolta look, you know. Uh, and so, um, so I just knew so many people had asked me if, you know, I knew where they could get weed. And so I, I made this arrangement with Jim where he, I, I think he originally maybe sold me an ounce or two and I would start carving it up into little bags and reselling it and uh geez and pretty soon i was making you know some extra money on the side and then i started buying like a quarter pound from him and and you know it's gonna be it was like every week i was going back to get a quarter pound and stuff and then um uh i devised a system uh when i worked for the airlines where i could distribute the product to my fellow pilots and flight attendants and pursers and stuff they had this what was called the mail room. You see, you have to understand this was before computers. I mean, right. they may have, I, yeah, I don't even think they had the DOS stuff then, you know. This this would have been in uh, 
like 73, 74, you know. So, um, so anyway, they had this, this long room that was probably about 20 or 30 feet wide, I guess. And all along the, the two opposite walls were file cabinets that were like four high, you know. And inside, when you open these drawers, there were drop folders, you know, file cabinet drop folders in there and with a little plastic tab and the little, and it would have the name of um, an employee, okay? And this is the way that the airlines communicated with you because sometimes you left at two o'clock in the morning and there's, you know, no one in the offices and stuff. And so um, you were required by contract, you know, to check your mailbox before you left on a flight and when you came back. And there would be like, um, you know, emergency updates and things, you know, like, you know, the 747 now has a yada, 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 and this is how you operated and stuff, you know. And uh, so the pilots, co-pilots, flight engineers, flight service managers, uh, you know, uh, hostesses, they called them then. It, it was the like pursers. old school email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of what yeah. it was, you know. And so when you looked on the, the uh, outside of the drawer, it might say co-pilots, A to C, you know, and so then everybody whose last name was A to C would be in alphabetical order. Yeah. And then below that, co-pilots, you know, D to F or whatever. And I mean, there was like a thousand of these drawers probably just because there were, uh, maybe not a thousand, but there were hundreds of drawers. And because uh, there were like 8,000 employees that flew out of uh, Kennedy Airport. And so um, I cooked up this scheme where... Um, Let's say you called me and you said, hey, you know, I need a, a you know, a half an ounce of some uh, Colombian gold. Everybody smoked Colombian or Mexican then. You know, I want, I want some of the Colombian gold, a half an ounce, you know. And I would say to you, okay, well, when are you flying out? And you would say, well, tomorrow I gotta, I'm going to San Francisco or whatever. And I would say, okay, um, check for uh, under the, uh, in the hostess boxes for Francis Frost. And in there will be a sealed envelope with your goodies in there. And then you drop an envelope with your check or your cash for me. And I would go in and put this drop folder with Frances Frost's name on it. She didn't even exist. So since she didn't exist, no one was looking in her envelope. Although occasionally there'd be an emergency update thing in there or whatever. But it went, and it was, nobody ever, you know, messed with your mail or anything, you know. And so you'd go to take your flight out or, or, Maybe when you came back from your flight, you would go check Francis Frost. You'd take your half ounce of weed out, and then you'd put an envelope in there and pay me. And then I had a little black book with all the names. And when I came in from my flight, you know, I'd have like 30 or 40 of these little false drop boxes. And I would just go around and pluck the envelopes out and tick them off the list. And if somebody didn't pay me, I'd call them, you know, hey, what's up, you know. And, um, and so that's basically how I uh, distributed it. And it was very efficient. And I would spend uh, an hour and a half or two before my flight weighing up all the bags, putting them in envelopes, putting the name on them and stuff. And, and then I'd have to spend 15 or 20 minutes there dropping them in the various uh, drop spots uh, for people. So I made a, was making a ton of money. And also they didn't have uh, inspection um, then, you know, uh, at the airports, there was no homeland security or anything. 
I bought from Jim for a while, but my business was just like growing leaps and bounds. I got to a point where I was getting a, a pound or two a week from him, you know. And um, then I realized I, I, you know, I had friends in Arizona, in, in Tucson and Nogales and stuff, uh, who were involved in smuggling marijuana in from Mexico. And I could fly out on a free pass because I was an employee and no one checked your suitcase in those days. And I would just go out there and I would pick up like 20 pounds, 30 pounds, Jeez. whatever in bricks, <laughs> whatever I could squeeze into like a, a, a suitcase. Yeah. Oh my well, gosh. And then, but there was no dogs. There was no, yeah. you didn't have to worry about smell. And plus it was Mexican, you know, it didn't have much of a smell, you know. But, I mean, I was getting, um, I, I, I think I was paying, uh, God, like $110 a kilo or something. And that's 2.2 pounds. So it was like around 50 bucks a pound I was paying for it for Mexican in, in those days. Yeah. And it was ragweed, you know, let's face it. There's a lot of stems and stuff, you know. But in Manhattan, you, you could sell a bag of weed that cost you $1.50 for 25 bucks. Wow. You know, and people were glad to have it because it wasn't all that easy to find, uh, yeah. you know, at that time. So uh, so anyway, I was making money uh, hand over fist. And then I started one of the things I learned early on is that in that business is that today's supplier is tomorrow's customer. All you have to do is find someone who's higher up on the food chain than him. And so I found people higher up on the food chain in Arizona, and I was bringing the weed back to my loft in Manhattan and uh, distributing it to my fellow uh, airline uh, employees. Well, fast forward, uh, I left the airlines uh, probably in, I'm thinking, 77, 76 maybe, uh, 76, 77, and I uh, moved out to uh, New Mexico, to Albuquerque, and uh, tried to, uh, you know, I, try, I tried to, <laughs> I tried to go straight, as they used to say. And uh, I, you know, of course, I didn't have a, a, a customer base here or anything, but I had a suitcase full of money. You know, I had a, like, I don't know, hundred grand or something in cash in a suitcase, and uh, and and that's a big worry because you know you don't want to come home and have that suitcase gone. You know, so you, you got to kind of keep a close eye <laughs> on the suitcase. You know. And I found some, some, uh, a couple of women who were looking for uh, roommates, you know. And so I answered their ad, and um, uh, they took me in as their roommate. So I had these two female roommates uh, up in the Heights here and stuff. And uh, I um, would, you know, made sure that I kept this, like, suitcase locked and stuff. And I remember that um, uh, probably after I lived there for about a week, I was talking to... I think her name was Marsha, you know, and uh, and uh, I was asking her what her folks do. She was raised in Albuquerque. She said, "Oh, my dad is the head of the FBI office here in here in Albuquerque." <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, oh, you know, we don't need this, you know. But uh, so I really had to kind of keep it on the DL, you know. But uh, but anyway, uh, I wound up uh, getting my own. I, I bought a house uh, uh, in Corrales and outside of Albuquerque, and. Um, um, I just couldn't make it work here. You know, I tried, I tried everything, you know. I just tried, I tried building furniture. I tried waiting tables. I got fired from that job for eating French fries, I remember. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was corporate, you know. 
Um, and, uh, you know, um, basically my suitcase was getting lighter and lighter. I'd bought a new pickup truck. You see, I, I, I really, at that age, I was unable to make the adjustment. When I lived in Manhattan, um, I could take 20, 25 people, my posse, you know, out mm -hmm. to dinner to the best restaurants every night, you know, and stuff. I mean, there were days when I made, you know, $10,000 in a few hours, you know. And so, um, uh, when I moved out here and was cut off from that income stream, um, I, I didn't do well at making the transition between being a more frugal person. I still wanted to take everybody out to dinner. I bought myself a nice shiny pickup truck. I had this house I paid cash for out in Corrales. Meanwhile, I tried to work. I tried to do things, but nothing was working out for me. So finally, I, uh, I sold the house, got a bunch of cash, and my friend Rod, who had moved out here uh, from New York to, yeah. and was kind of my bro and was staying with me, and Rod played... Uh, uh, a Martin guitar D35 and uh, had a good voice and, and he, he loved John Prine and he did all the John Prine songs and Chris Christopherson songs and some Dylan but also uh, some of the good solid old country like he did, he did a bunch of Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and uh, Hank Williams tunes and stuff you know and anyway um, he, I bought a guitar and he was teaching me some chords and I had a pretty decent voice and we would harmonize you know we'd smoke weed and drink you know, beers and sit up at the place in Corrales and, and uh, play our guitars and sing. And so I sold the place, got a bunch of dough, dug up my little black book and tried to find some of my old connections down in Key West where I could, that's where I got a lot of the marijuana that I sold in Manhattan, you know, was from Key West. So I found this guy, was a smuggler that I'd done business with in the past. And he said, yeah, I just, just went out and met the mothership. You know, the Colombian ships would go off coast, and then these guys would have what are called cigarette boats that are faster mm -hmm. than what the Coast Guard had, you know? So they would go out to the mother boat and, you know, get like a 1,000 pounds or whatever and bring it in. Jeez. And then guys like us would go there with a, you know, uh, a big, we'd call it a boat, you know, like a big Buick or, or you know, Chrysler or something mm -hmm. with a huge trunk. That's what you wanted. And then you had to put air shocks in the back because when it, you loaded the trunk with, you know, two or three hundred pounds of marijuana, the 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 back would go down. You know, you'd right. have tail drag. You could tell. Yeah. yeah, and then and that was and then uh, people would clock your scene. That was the word we used for it. And then, which basically means both the police and pirates would know. They would see two white guys. You in loaded a, the trunk with, you know, two or three hundred pounds of marijuana. The 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 back would go down, you know, you right. have tail drag. You can tell, yeah. Yeah, and then, and that was, and then uh, people would clock your scene. That was the word we used for it, and then, which basically means both the police and pirates would know, they would see two white guys in a big boat with tail drag. It meant they got a load of weed in the back and let's pull them over and stick a gun to their head or put handcuffs on them or whatever, right. you know. So anyway, that, that's how we always brought the marijuana from uh, Key West. And we continued to do that when uh, we started going back down again and bringing marijuana into New Mexico in the 70s. And um, we kept turning it over and turning it over. And, uh, uh, you know, our, our dough, our, you know, our suitcase was getting fat again, you know. And uh, so we knew we wouldn't be able to fit the 
we were getting 350 pounds this trip, and we knew we couldn't fit it in the back of a car anymore, so we took my friend's pickup truck, and we got a bunch of, um, no, it's like foot lockers. I don't know. Yeah, you know what I mean? They're like, like Siemens trunks little or chest whatever. With little chest with handles and a place for a padlock yeah. on the front, you know. And uh, so we bought like, you know, a bunch of those, you know, like 15 of them or whatever, and, and put them all in the back of the truck. 300 pounds is, is, a, is not... That's a, I mean, it, it, it's a large person, but I'm guessing it's a much larger, like, like. It is, volume. yeah, yeah. But it, well, it was compressed, you know. It was yeah. all compressed into bricks and everything. But, you know, 350 pounds uh, filled up probably three quarters of the back of that uh, pickup truck, you know. <laughs> so we had this load, and we're driving. I remember it was a full moon that night. Which makes sense, right? It's a half-ton pickup. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Literally, yeah. Yeah, wow. So, um so um, it was a full moon that night, and we were driving up Interstate 10 um, in my friend's uh, truck, and uh, it was about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And as we're you know, heading west on I-10, we see this big sign that says, uh, Agriculture Inspection Station, one mile ahead, all trucks must stop. And because we'd always been in a car in the past, I never paid that sign any mind, you know? But guess what? Tonight we were in a truck. And I'm like, shit. And, and uh, Rod said, uh, should we stop? I remember he was driving. I said, no. Uh, you know, I said, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's probably not even anyone on duty there, you know? Well, as it turns out, so much marijuana goes from South Florida up Interstate 10, and it's like, you know, they used to call it Marijuana Road or whatever, you know, um, that this is how these small, the, any, any county where there's an agriculture inspection station, this is how the county makes their money. Makes their money. Yeah. If they've got an agriculture inspection, because guys like us who are dumb, didn't do their homework, would get caught to the tune of like three or four a day would get caught. I'm guessing there. when they say agriculture inspection, they're not going to smoke it to see if it's good. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll handle the jokes. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so we get pulled over and this guy says, uh, uh, how you boys doing? And, you know, Southern accent. Oh, doing all right, officer. And were we speeding? He said, no, but you didn't stop at the agriculture. I need to have a look in the back of your vehicle. And I'm, well, well, for sure, go ahead. Well, they're all locked with padlocks, you know, and he says, uh, and it and it was a hot, humid night, and it just it just reeked of marijuana in the back of it. I mean, reeked of it, you know. So there was no bullshitting anyone, you know. So he says, "Well, he says I'm gonna have to look inside those um, boxes, boys." And we said, "Well, we're just roadies for this band. See our guitars here, you know. We play in this band, and we're also sort of you know, equipment jockeys." And we were playing down in South Florida. We're heading home to New Mexico, and that's all like sound equipment and stuff in those boxes. And he says, okay, well, he says, um, let's have a look. And I said, well, you know what? The manager, he doesn't really trust us all that much. So he locks up the boxes always, and he flies back to Albuquerque. He's got the keys. The guy says, well, that's not going to work. You know, he says, we need to see in those boxes. And I said, well, we don't have the keys. I don't know what, what we're going to do. And he says, well, here's what we're going to do. He says, you boys are going to be the guest in our, it's a Saturday night. He says, you, got, you boys are going to be, guests in our uh, our hotel tonight, meaning the county jail. And in the morning, we're going to saw those locks off. And if there's musical equipment in there, we're going to buy you boys some new locks and you'll be on your way. 
And uh, I said, okay, you know, and we tried to call their bluff, you know, you know, you'll see, you know. But everybody already knew. I mean, it reeked, you know. So next morning, they... It was like, it was like you had a herd of skunks in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they, you know, they found the weed in there the next day and brought us out to look at it and stuff. And, uh, but the, the, uh, on a side note, that morning when we woke up in that county jail, it's breakfast time. And these ladies come down the corridor, you know, it's like one cell after another with like bars. And then the cells themselves have cinder block walls on three sides, but there's one side that's all bars and a hallway. So they can hand you your meals or your mail or whatever. And so there's these, these uh, ladies uh, handing out breakfast. And man, it was like uh, uh, homemade waffles with pecans and real maple syrup and blueberries and whipped cream and, you know, uh, sectioned grapefruit and great coffee and stuff. And I remember turning to, to Rod and I said, man, you know, if we end up having to spend a few weeks here or something, I said, at least the food is awesome, you know. And at that point, the other uh, inmates all started laughing, you know. And they said, one day out of the year, the ladies, the do-gooder ladies from the Baptist church come and make a real fancy southern breakfast for all the inmates at the county jail. And you guys just happened to hit it on that Sunday. And they said, wait till you see breakfast tomorrow. Well, the next breakfast I had was the same breakfast I had every day for the next six months. And it oh, was, wow. uh, it was uh, instant scrambled eggs, instant grits, uh, these things they called dog dicks, which were basically fried black hot dogs. They were hot dogs just fried black, you know. And a piece of white bread, Wonder Bread toast with that yellow liquid spread on it that's supposed to look like butter. And then a cup of instant coffee with no cream or sugar. And that was breakfast every day for, for the next six months. But anyway, so um, we were in there for about a week or two, and they, you know, uh, we... We were arraigned, and they, uh, we, we got a public defender, and they uh, told us what we were charged with, you know, distribution, transportation, interstate transportation of marijuana, blah, 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 you know. And so uh, the... Uh, is that a felony? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. sort of, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't that, know that's funny. I, yeah, I told you I would handle the jokes, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, the public defender uh, says, well you boys are looking at 15 years max in Rayford Penitentiary, you know? And um, now, he says, don't get too depressed. He said, a couple years ago, I got a couple of boys from Michigan off with three and a half years. And he says, that's what we're going to shoot for. And if you get three and a half years, you'll be out in about two years and three months with good behavior and with the time you've already served by the time your trial comes up, mm -hmm. which is probably going to be in about five months, you know? Wow. And so uh, I'm like, okay. We'd been in there for uh, about a week or so, and one day the, uh, one of the deputies comes down the, cor uh, the, down the hallway and uh, on the other side where the doors are, and I hear our door open, and he comes in, and he's got our guitars. And he says, we're going to let you boys have your guitars because, you know, we don't want to be responsible for them. You know, if they get broke or something, they look like nice instruments. And, and, and you know, it was almost like an Andy and Mayberry kind of a deal yeah. there. There was uh, a women's side and a men's side, and there was like 10 cells on each side. You know, it's a small county jail. And so um, we got our guitars and we started playing. Travis and his friend played guitar in their cell, which helped pass the time. 
Needless to say, they were well-liked in jail and befriended everyone in the county jail. During this time, Travis was alone, and he was so far from Albuquerque, which made it hard for people to visit, yet he did have a girlfriend in Santa Fe who wrote and called him frequently, which made it easier to be in jail. Travis's girlfriend's name is Rebecca, and he explained that she was a new ager with some interesting ideas. She was like my only friend when I was incarcerated, and she... Uh, I got to talk to her on the phone once a week, could call her collect, you know. She put all my furniture in storage for me so it wouldn't get, you know, confiscated. Uh, and she started sending me books. And she sent me the autobiography of a yogi, and uh, she sent me just all of these books about, uh, about metaphysics, you know, about uh, sort of, uh, you know, the basic tenet of metaphysics is that, you know, we create our reality by, by our thoughts, and we attract stuff, including our fears, you know. And, um, and so I found that stuff really fascinating because I had rejected Catholicism, had been forced to go to church as a, my mother made me go to church twice on Sunday, once for me and once for her, because she had a hangover and didn't want to get up, you know. So I started reading these books in jail, and then she started sending me these books that were like the next level, and they were like supposedly like channeled, you know, by some spirit entity where somebody would go into a trance and uh, start speaking with a different dialect and imparting all of this worldly knowledge, you know, about, you know, science and uh, disease and, you know, and, and I was just fascinated uh, with this stuff. And, uh, and I started writing down my dreams and I started, uh, taught myself to meditate and everything. And, uh, and, and so, you know, visualization was a big part of this. And she mm -hmm. sent me, you know, Peel's book on, uh, you know, uh, the power of positive thinking and stuff, you know. And so, uh, so anyway, um, I was reading all this stuff and she said, you know, come on, you know, Travis, you can do it. Just think positively and visualize yourself getting out of that place. And, you know, and uh, I'll, I'll do the same on my end. And, you know, but, you know, the months went by and stuff and, and uh, for a second there, I thought you were gonna say that like the gate just opened up. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's more to the story. So, so anyway, um, I remember that uh, at one point I I I, I sort of got down, and we were talking on the phone, and I lashed out at her, and you know we do that sometimes. We we you know. Um, lash out at people that are closest to us that we love the most because we know that they won't forsake us. You know, they'll stand there and, and, and take it, you know, and it's really sometimes not even about them, you know, it's about having a rough day or whatever. And so we take it out on the people we're closest to, which is really shitty, you know, yeah. but, but it's a human thing. And so anyway, I kind of remember sort of uh, getting in her face a little bit uh, on the phone and saying, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't send me any more of these books. You know, this is probably just more horse like Catholicism, you know, I says, um, I mean, who, who could know, who, who's to say that, you know, you can visualize or think positive thoughts and, and, and good things will come your way or whatever, you know, I said, what's, what's the proof and what's the proof that you can send messages and things telepathically or, you know, remote viewing, they call it, you know, and, and, and by this point I had read like 30 of these books, you know, because yeah, I had nothing else to do, really. Right. I, I, I remember being, I was really smug, and I said, you know, Rebecca, I said, here's what we're going to do. I said, as soon as we hang up this phone, I'm going to go into my jail cell, and I'm going to take a piece of paper and a pencil, and I'm going to make a little 
sketch of something, a little line sketch, okay? And I'm going to scotch tape it or, you know, stick it to the wall with a piece of chewing gum, you know? Didn't have scotch tape in, <laughs> in that unit. Uh, anyway, I'm going to stick it up on the wall, and then I'm going to, you know, get in a lotus position, and I'm going to stare at this picture that I've drawn, and I'm going to send that image to you telepathically. And then I want you, at the same moment, to sit and face east toward me at a blank wall and open your mind and see if you can receive the image that I'm sending you. And then I want you to draw that image on a piece of paper, Rebecca, and I want you to stuff it in an envelope, and I want you to march down to the post office and mail it to me today, you know, this afternoon. I want all this to happen this afternoon. And I'll do the same with you. I'll take my piece of paper, I'll have the trustee come down, you know, they, they did give us postage stamps, you know, and stuff. And, uh, and I'll mail you the actual drawing. So Rebecca was kind of the key to my heart. That's how I thought of her in those days. She was like my only friend, you know. Um, and so I drew this picture of a heart with a skeleton keyhole in it, you know, like the ones in yeah. the cartoons, and with a, a skeleton key handle sticking out of it, like there was a key in the lock hole in the heart, you know. And then the message basically was, you know, you're the key to my heart. And so I did this 15 or 20 minute meditation. Had you told her that she was this before? No. no. Oh, no, 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 no. Never, never used that frame. No, no, absolutely okay. not. And so um, I took uh, the drawing and I put it in an envelope and I mailed it to her. And then like three days later, hey, Parkin, you got some mail, you know? So uh, trustee brings me and it's from her in Santa Fe postmark. I checked the postmark to make sure yeah. it's like the, she hasn't gotten mine first or something, but she mailed it like that day. And so I open it up and there's a drawing in there with a letter paper clipped to it. And I look at the drawing and it's a sketch of a heart and standing next to it is a skeleton key. No keyhole in it or anything, but a heart with a skeleton key standing next to it. And I can remember um, the hair standing up on the back of my neck, you know. I mean, just like, it spooked me, you know. It, it freaked me out. And I remember walking back and forth in my cell and saying, holy shit. That's all I could say. I just said holy shit like about 20 times, you know. And I showed it to my cellmate and stuff. And um, as far as my belief system goes, you know, I never really looked back after that, you know. Sure. And, and, and then I really got serious about trying to visualize my ass out of that place, you know. Well, <laughs> about, a, about a week later, about a week later, it's a Saturday, and Rod and I are in the cell, and we're picking at some, learning a couple new songs or whatever. And uh, this guy comes walking down the corridor, you know, on the other side of the bars, and he's got one of those white plastic five-gallon buckets, and it's filled with catfish that are, some of them are still alive, you know. And he's got a fishing pole, you know, one of those, like, that you take apart and you put it in the case that's yeah. over his shoulder, and he's got waiter boots on and stuff. And, uh, and he comes back. And, uh, oh, one of the things I, I didn't mention is because we, Rod and I, sang some country songs and had our guitars, that they let us out one day for the law enforcement barbecue and in shackles, and we played in the, in the community park for all of the, uh, the um, detectives and, their, uh, and the officers and their fat spouses, you know, and stuff. And, um, and uh, we, um, 
and their kids, you know, um, and we got to eat barbecue, which was awesome, and had drink a soda, you know, and stuff. So anyway, so we were starting to get pretty well liked there in the jailhouse, just being pretty good old boys, you know, and stuff. So anyway, this one day, this guy with his fishing pole and his fish comes down and he, he sits on the radiator that was along the wall right opposite our uh, cell. And he sits up there with one leg on the floor and one kind of uh, cocked up in the air. And uh, he said, uh, so uh, he says, I heard you boys can sing some country music. And we said, yeah, we can. You know, what about it? And he says, well, you know, he says, you know, this is a dry county, don't you? And we said, you know what that means. Yeah, they don't sell, yeah. serve any alcohol there. So, it's um, like Lubbock. Yeah, yeah. 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 So no uh, so no alcohol and that means no live music, you know. Um and so he said, I love me some country music. He says, You boys, uh, you know any Buck Owens? And so well we knew a couple of his songs, so we, you know, played the streets of Bakerfield and something else and um and then he wanted to hear some uh, Merle Haggard and some Johnny Cash. And then we got him to listen to a John Prine song, and he kind of liked that. And we, we played a Bob Dylan song for him, and uh, he, was, he was down with that, you know. And uh, so he says, well, I'll come and see you boys again next Saturday. He says, my name's Ken. So next Saturday, this guy Ken comes down, and he brings Rod and me an RC Cola and a Moon Pie, which was a big deal in the South. It's like their Coca-Cola and a yeah. moon pie, you know, it's a marshmallow graham cracker yeah. thing. You know, I would never put either of that, those things in my body now, but uh, that was quite a treat when you were eating fried dogs and uh, instant <laughs> scrambled eggs. So he says, yeah, my name is uh, Ken and I'll see you, uh, I'll come by next week. And, and he comes by with this uh, moon pie and RC Cola and he sits out there and starts requesting some more songs and he's really enjoying it. You know, it's just... Uh, and my friend had a real good voice and stuff, and uh, he, he, you could just tell it was kind of the highlight of his, his week to come and hear uh, Rod and me sing and play some country songs. And so he came every, every, pretty much every Saturday uh, for the next four or five months, you know. Fast forward to our uh, uh, trial day, you know, we meet with the um, public defender in this meeting room, and he says... He says, now, I, he says, I got you boys a really good deal. He said, we've I've talked to the judge. It's all been worked out. He says, all you need to do is plead guilty and trust me. Well, you know, talk about trusting strangers, you know, but uh, he seemed like an okay guy. And, and so uh, I said, all right. So we went in there, and, uh, and we're thinking, you know, it's three and a half years, and we'll get out in two and or two and change and we've already served uh five and a half months so you know maybe we'll get out in a year and a half or, or a year and nine months or something and uh, you know and your mind starts working like that and you say well i've already done almost six months i can do a year and nine but you know you know i can i can i can get through that you know so anyway it, the only problem was it would be in a full-on state penitentiary yeah. you know so we go into the uh the courtroom and we're uh, sitting there uh, waiting everybody to file in and then everybody's sitting there and, and then finally the bailiff stands up and he says uh, all rise and then he says uh, the honorable Kenneth Deacon is now in the courtroom yes and uh, <laughs> this judge was our friend Ken yeah. 
and uh, with his black robe on and everything. And he played it straight like he didn't know us. And we played it straight like we didn't know him. And we, yes, your honor, no, your honor. And he said, I'm sentencing you boys to six months in the county jail and you've already served five and a half. He said, that's the minimum sentence I can give you and you'll be back in New Mexico in a couple of weeks, you know? And he says, don't let me ever see you in Lake County again. So we, two weeks later, we got out and we had a, get a bus ticket to, on the Greyhound back to New, I went to New Mexico, he went back to Tennessee. And we had, uh, the bus wasn't leaving uh, for several hours, three or four hours. The only thing I could think about was eating fresh fruit. <laughs> and there was a big fruit depot about a block down the street from the jailhouse, maybe two blocks down the street from the jailhouse, where they had cases of beautiful ripe peaches that you could smell from like a block away, you know, <laughs> and cantaloupes and oranges and, you know, just uh, mangoes, you know, just all this wonderful fruit. And um, I remember sitting there and in the in the in the little downtown community park where we had played for the law enforcement barbecue i remember sitting there on the pavilion with my friend rod and i swear we ate probably a quarter of a case of peaches between the two of us and i just had peach juice all running down my beard and on my shirt and everything and i didn't care you know and i i ate peaches until i was literally sick you know just sick to my stomach you know and then I bet. we got thinking about all of our buddies inside that you know, and how much they might like to have some fruit. So we went and bought, you know, and, and then it was cheap, you know, because it was, you're right there where it's grown and this was a big wholesale market. And I think we bought a, another case of peaches and we bought a watermelon and some oranges and stuff. And then we went back up to the jailhouse. Well, we went to the jailhouse first, actually. And we asked the jailer, uh, Sandy, who was on duty, if it would be okay if we brought some fruit in and handed it out to oh, the inmates. For a second yeah. there, I thought it was going to be another one of those mail schemes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Fruit. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of it. So, um, so he said, okay. And so we brought all this uh, uh, fruit in and we're handing out peaches and mangoes and oranges and stuff through the bars. But then we have this watermelon and there was no way we could get that through the bars. So I, we went back up to the jailer, up to Sandy, and asked him if we could borrow a knife. And he said, well, boys, he says you know, that's a bridge too far. You know, he says, we, we can't go there. You know, I can't have you bringing a knife down into the jailhouse. He says, uh, sorry. So uh, being the, the clever fellow that I am, I had, uh, uh, I took the uh, high E string off my Martin guitar. It was a metal yeah. E string and we wrapped it around the bar and then held it with a pencil on the other end and then sawed slices of watermelon with the E string from the Martin guitar and handed wedges of watermelon uh, through the bars to the other inmates. And then I uh, took a Greyhound uh, back to New Mexico. And that was the, so that, to answer your uh, question, that was my biggest scrape with the, with the law. <laughs> That's a hell of a scrape. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. goodness. That is it for our interview with Travis Barkin. As I said in the last show, you would not want to miss the last half of this interview. Please subscribe as our next guests should be interesting and informative and hopefully get you thinking about engaging folks that you don't already know in the world around you. Reconsider Strangers is hosted by me, Matt Carlson. This episode was produced by me and Joy Belleville and brought to you by Adult Serial. If you like Reconsider Strangers, tell a friend. 
and maybe leave us a review. Until next time.